0: Amen. Psalms 96, 7 through 9. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And the word A could be removed because that's actually meaning the A clause of that verse. and. And um, that that could be removed. But it said, Tremble before him all the earth. Then in Revelation chapter 5, 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Which literally means a number too big for them to count. Saying with a loud voice worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and, glo- and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Forever and ever. And then this verse, verse 14. Then the four living creatures. these seem to correspond to the four living creatures in the book of Ezekiel. Or the creature with four faces. They said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. I want to speak this morning from this subject, putting worth back in worship putting worth back in worship. Father, I thank you today for your word. That is incredible. I pray that you would impact our hearts today with your word and then that wonderful way you have of helping us draw closer to you and letting your word change our lives. Help us to jettison thoughts that are not consistent with Your word, principles, ideas that we might have embraced a lifetime and never questioned, never critically examined. Help us to get rid of those as your word impacts us and help us to embrace the truth, the vision that we see demonstrated in your word that we may become more like you. We ask in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. We'll begin by just taking a closer look at this text in Revelation chapter 5, <clears throat> every time I read this, I'm i am I'm overwhelmed. This is an extraordinary supernatural encounter that God gives the Apostle John, who has been exiled by the Roman government to the Isle of Patmos, Patmos a prison colony on a rocky island where he is supposed to be in hard labor and in these circumstances so adverse with everything in the world going wrong i mean he's an old man and he's having to work on a prison island in a prison camp and salt mines under the most difficult of circumstances he has this extraordinary vision god rolls the heavens back before john and in so doing causes time itself to be suspended. Time is suspended for this reason. Time is actually determined by the movement of the earth in relationship to the heavens and the universe. And whenever the heavens are moved out of the way, time then ceases to exist. And John peers straight down this corridor that has been pushed back in time into eternity. And he peers Millennials into the future, at least two we know, because two have transpired from that time till now. We understand that time is a parenthetical insertion into eternity anyway. It didn't exist before God created time. It was eternity, worlds, and ages without end. And time will someday end, and then it will be ages and worlds without end once more parenthetical insertion into eternity to fulfill the purposes of God and allow us to partner with Him to become His kingdom agents and sons and daughters and the fulfillment of His divine plan. There is a time coming when that will no longer be. Time will cease to exist. What John saw as he peers through this corridor right carved right out of time straight into the eternities before us, is remarkable and beyond the scope of the mortal mind to fully comprehend. He was given a glimpse of all of heaven's holy angels joined with the entirety of creation from and across countless universes as they blended their voices together in an act of worship that reverberates throughout the ages, and they simply declared over and over, God is worthy. Over and over they cried, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. This is significant because to declare something worthy is a statement or an appraisal of value. It's an assessment of value. By testifying to God's greatness in this manner, they were simply implying or taking the position That whatever can be said about God and His glory, and no matter how great the adjectives and and how magnificent the superlatives that you might use in your declaration of His majesty and His value, that in their estimation, He is worthy or He is worth the value that you are placing upon Him. Now that is an extraordinary thing, extraordinary. The four living creatures who seem to have been given the assignment of appraising the quality of the worship that's being offered to God. They're standing there. They're looking and they're evaluating the worship of countless beyonds from across time and eternity. We don't don't even know how many universes. You say, I don't know if there's life on other planet. doesn't need to be. Planets and stars praise God. The rain falling praises God. The thunder, the lightning, the snow, the sea roaring, waves crashing against the beach. All of that is nature's voice declaring that God is worthy. And other universes join in, whether there is life or animation or not, doesn't even matter. What we know is that these four living creatures are there and they are evaluating their assignment, their task seems to be to look at the worship and determine if it is up to the standards that need to be met to present to God. And then after they watched the worship, this is what they do. They joined in by saying, Amen. Amen. Now we use that phrase in church, but do you really know what it means? It simply means it is so. So, their statement of it is so is in response to what worshipers, earth, universes without number, are offering to God. And as they cry, worthy, or this appraisal of value, that He is worth what we are saying, He is worth our assessment of who He is, they nod their heads. And say, it is so. He is. He is worth it. No one interrupted them to say, don't you think you're going over the top? No one said that exceeds what really should be stated. Come on, don't be ridiculous. You're kind of exaggerating the situation, aren't you? Not a single voice in this world or any other is raised to make that objection. I have been, and I'm sure you have, in places where I've paid money (laughs) to go to something that was really hyped up. And about halfway through, I was kind of looking for the exit and hoping I could find the guy I gave my money to on the way out. So I could ask for a refund. But no one here declares that that is the case. Every single person says, you are worthy. And they do it in such a manner that those who are Put there to see if the standards of excellence in worship are met, nod their heads and say, It is so. He is worthy. You're right. They all agree. In our other text, taken from Psalms 96, 7 through 9, we read that as families, we are to declare God's worth together in worship. That's what families are to do. Not individually, as families, we are supposed to worship as families. As families. That's a principle that has been consistent all the way from the book of Genesis through to the end of the Bible. Now in the final book of the Bible, book 66, the book of Revelation, families are supposed to worship. John says, I saw kindred, that means families, that were there. And this is what the psalmist declares that we should do. Ascribe to the Lord All you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due. His name, bring an offering and come into his courts and worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him. He says, all the earth. Amen. Amen. Three times we are instructed to ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength that is due. Due his name. The word "due" here is important too, because it implies a debt, an imbalance, a deficit that is outstanding. I recently went to the dentist and dental insurance, but there was a certain amount that was owed, and I had to go a couple of times. The last i have still got to go again, for that matter. And the uh, when I went to to pay. I've known the dentists. They they used to be members of the church here, and they moved north of town and so forth, but they're still dear friends. Um, uh, The dentist that is there now, his dad was the dentist then. We used to play racquetball together. We go way back. And so the daughter who works in the the office looked up and said, Oh, pastor, as I was waiting for the bill, you go ahead. We know where to find you. (laughs) We know you. We've known you for 30-plus years. And sure enough, they found me this week. Sometimes you don't want to be found, right? (laughs) Amen. And there was something due. There was a debt, and so we're taking care of that. But what this implies by stating that we give God worship that is due his name indicates that because of God's greatness, there's a universal imbalance that exists, which can only be corrected by offering proper worship. There's something outstanding, and indebtedness, that from the onset is present. And when you worship God, you're giving to a debt, an imbalance. The earth is tilted, and worship props it back up. The King James translates the word ascribe as give unto the Lord glory and strength, and And one reason that other translations, such as the one I've used, which is the NIV, translated as a scribe, many of them translate it that way. One reason they do is when you think about it, how can we possibly, as mere mortals, give him glory or add to his strength? How can we add to the greatness of God? It's as though we're being instructed to somehow make him more glorious or even make him stronger. How would that even... How can you do that as a mere human being? The problem you see is in the translation. The word give falls short in helping us understand the full range of meaning that the original Hebrew word used here. And that is why in our text we see the word ascribe and it means to attribute something to. It means to assign or to regard as belonging to. And in this context what it means is to humbly Give credit and acknowledgement to God for the attributes and characteristics that already belong to him. They already belong to him. And the fact that he's already all of this and more from the onset creates this deficit in the universe that can only be righted in worship. It doesn't mean that we necessarily possess any actual strength or glory apart from God that we can bestow upon or give him When you look at this word, it even means a little bit more than that. It literally means to write or to make a record of. You remember, for example, Jesus talked to the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the root word of a scribe is scribe. And we know that Jesus always had something unkind to say about the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. But don't let that make you think that there was anything wrong with being a scribe. A scribe was actually a scholar. Not everybody could read and write. They were meticulously trained. These were the people who copied the various copies of the Bible and handed them down. So that when the Torah wore out in the synagogue, they would have something to replace it with. And all of these people that today question and ask, How do we even know we can believe the Bible? Because it's been translated so many times. I'll answer that question. The reason we can believe it is because of the scribes. Because they were taught to be so meticulous that they even counted the spaces between letters. And in their copies, put the same number of spaces. If there was one space, they put one. If there were two, they put two. The little squiggly thing in the curlicue over some of the Hebrew letters of the alphabet, they were trained. You put everything there. And therefore... One of the Torahs that Moses distributed and used in the wilderness differed nothing at all from those in Jesus' day. A scribe meant to write something down. You say, well, why did Jesus oppose the scribe so strongly? It's because not only did they copy the text, but they also believed that man-made laws were just as important as the laws of God. So they copied those down too. And that's what upset Christ. Don't put man's law on the same level as the law of God. Amen. Well, add your stuff to the word of God. Jesus was against that. Nevertheless, their skills and the accurate copies they made provided scripture that is vital to us today. But this is the point. When you ascribe worth to God, you are writing something down you are making a record just like they took the papyrus and the quill and dipped it in the ink you too are making a record that lives on after you you're recording the greatness of god and this is especially significant at this time of the year this christmas weekend as it were and so that begs the question of how do we ascribe greatness to god First, as we've seen, the first way that you literally ascribe greatness to God is by worshiping Him. Amen. That's what they were doing. They were worshiping Deuteronomy 32 3. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Amen. Ascribe greatness to our God. When you come to the house of God and worship, you worship in your devotions privately. You are making a record that exists within the universe that God is worthy. Number two, you ascribe greatness to God by learning about him. Job 36.3, I will fetch my knowledge from afar, meaning that I'm gonna travel to learn. I'm not gonna sit here and be content to read the funny papers, (laughs) watch TV. I'm I'm gonna put an effort into learning, is what he's saying. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. It's a simple fact. The more you learn about God, the more you cannot help but love and worship Him. The more you learn about Him, the more in awe of Him you become. That's one reason the enemy will do literally everything he can to keep you out of the house of God and keep you so busy you don't even open the Bible during the week. And your father tell you it's not even necessary. Don't worry about Bible study. He does all of that because he knows the more you learn about him, the more you're going to have to worship him. Amen. Number three, you even ascribe greatness to God by honoring your family and modeling commitment to God before them. Don't just worship in isolation and alone, but worship, as I already have stated earlier, as a family. Your family needs to see your devotion because what this will do is perpetuate an understanding of God from generation to generation. And God wants you to worship before your family so that they will also see the value you place on him because they will learn to place the same and similar value on God. First Chronicles 16, 28, and ascribe to the Lord, all you families, see that? Families. Of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And number four, you ascribe greatness to God in your giving and by attending his house to worship him. First Chronicles 16:29, ascribe to the Lord the glory, due his name, bring an offering, and come before him and worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And you come to the house of God and you come to worship. And you come to give, rather that your time or your money or your service, you're ascribing greatness to God. I'll just say this, and and I know people don't like to to call attention to their giving, but last week I showed you the the Bible school that had been built in the church in Dodoma, Tanzania. And just this morning, Brother and Sister Trahan walked up and handed me a check. He's the cowboy sitting right over here. We got got to have some real cowboys in the church. I don't know if you all know that or not. This is Texas. All you with hats, you got the hat, but you ain't got the cows. Amen. We got a few that had the cows and the horses too. And they gave me a check for $10,000 to build a church in Tanzania. Isn't that phenomenal? And we prayed together and I thanked them and I said, you can make people go to heaven just because of that. And they will. When you attend the house of God and you give what you're doing is you're ascribing greatness to God. And if by our worship we ascribe greatness to God, it is imperative, isn't it, that we also should understand what worship is. And that's what I've really come to talk to you about. The word worship comes from the old English word, worth It was a term of address given to royalty in Europe several centuries ago. And they still use it in some places today they would use the word lordship. And sometimes they would simply say, worth are worth ship. And what happened is, is over time, these two words were combined into one to create a literary device called a portmanteau. It's where you take two words and make them one. And so they dropped part of the word worth and they added it to ship and now you have worship. And the reason I'm calling this to your attention is because I personally believe we've come to a place where we always need to understand worth should be a part of worship. Don't cut it out. Don't cut it out. I want to put worth back in worship. And if worship ascribes worth or value to God, then this is what is really significant, and I want you to hear me. If worship ascribes worship to God, Your worship is your personal assessment of God's value. I don't think you're hearing me. You may not have thought of it like this, but worship is your personal declaration of the worth of God. And this is what's amazing about it. When you take your core... For a trade-in, you know what the salesman does, right? He goes into his office, gets on his computer, and in some cases even has a hard copy, but he goes to the blue book. And he pulls up the make and the model of your car, the year, the color. He looks at the dings and the dents in the door. The taillight that's not working, he looks at the odometer, and some people are clever enough to roll the odometer back a little bit, so he then opens the car, bends over, and looks at the pad on the accelerator and the brake. And if they're worn, he knows that odometer is lying to him. And he comes back after examining the condition of the seats and whether you're using two quarts of oil every 500 miles or not and, and he'll make you an offer based upon his educated ability to make an appraisal. God does something extraordinarily strange and very unusual each time we worship him. He allows us to write the appraisal on his value we declare to the world our assessment of him. We're walking around kicking God's tires, looking at the scratches on the door, and when we worship, what we offer literally becomes our assessment. We're ascribing to him. We're writing an offer. This is what God is worth. And you would think, that to be able to determine the worth of God's value would require some really specialized training, wouldn't you? Because after all, you have to be trained and earn a license just to become an appraiser of gems, such as diamonds. You don't get into that industry without learning how to properly assess color, carat, weight, all of the other things, clarity. You even have to have training... To be a tax assessor. There's a board in this city, and you know what they do? They drive by your neighborhood and they do all the comps and the values and and they look at your land and the improvements you have made, and you get a tax bill and you got to pay the taxes based upon their educated projection of the worth of your property. They do the same thing with your house if you get ready to sell it. You have to be trained. And this is what blows my mind. To make an appraisal of God's value. You walk right in off the street without any training and your worship declares to an entire universe the value of the God you serve. Oh, I need somebody in the building to hear what I'm saying. And there's only one worthy of worship, and, and you will discover in the course of your life that very many things in your life will seek your appraisal. They will ask you to assess their value, their importance to you. Jobs, hobbies, relationships, possessions, entertainment, fame. All of it is asking you, how much am I worth to you? And you answer that question by the time that you give to each of these things. And the significance that you attach to them. What are you willing to not do to do this? That's how much that is worth to you. These things will seek for you to ascribe to them value. But I want to make the declaration this Christmas weekend that the only God That deserves value is the one we worship today. (laughs) Only God. Only God deserves your highest praise. Only God. Listen to this. Luke 4 verse 5 through 8. Then the devil took him, Jesus, up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And verse 6 says, the enemy spoke to Christ and said, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. And you say, that sounds strange. I don't know if I agree with that. You should agree with it. Because it is true, the entire universe belonged to God. But then God created Adam, placed him on this planet. And in Genesis 1 said, I'm giving you authority. He gave Adam authority. And then Satan came along and deceived Adam and took that authority from him. You say, well, why doesn't God go get it back? Very simple. It's for the same reason that if your grandfather gives you a piece of land and gives you the title deed, and then some scallywag comes along. (laughs) Con artist. (laughs) Bamboozles you. you Cons you. Runs game on you. And get you to sign that property over to him. Your granddad cannot go to court and say, I want my, my land back that was taken from my grandson. No, the courts will say, you surrendered authority when you gave it to your grandson. He in turn has now surrendered it to this person. Your grandson may have a claim in court, but you don't have a claim in court. And this is why Christ had to come and be born a man. It is because God did not have a claim. His son gave authority away. And he had to become a man, the grandson of Adam, to be able to lay claim in court for his inheritance. And so the enemy tells Christ, rightly so. All of this you see belongs to me. They're mine to give to anyone I please. Fall down and worship me. And this is what Christ said. I will, this is what the enemy said. I will give it all to you if you will worship me and ascribe to me worth. That's what it means. If you will worth-ship, if you will elevate and ascribe to me value. That's what you do every time when you have an ego need and you get with the wrong people to give you a projection of your self-worth. You're letting the wrong people determine who you are. And the enemy is saying, I need somebody to tell me I'm worth something. The only one you can find that will reflect the true worth is Christ alone on the cross of Calvary because he gave his life for you. The enemy says, if you will fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. And this is what Jesus answered. The scriptures say... You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, I realize that in the general sense, he's quoting from the law, right? You must, the Ten Commandments, you must worship the Lord. But in a specific sense, he is addressing this comment, Christ is, to one person standing in front of him. And that person is Satan himself. And this is what Christ says, you... Must worship me, Satan. You don't even get a pass. The very one that's trying to deceive you into not worshiping doesn't get a pass himself. Because there is such a deficit that exists. That all of creation has got to cry out to right the tilting of the world. That God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of amen in both psalms 18 and 13 and psalms 87 and 5 and i won't put them on the screen we find that one of the names by which god is known is simply the highest the highest no matter how great something else is he's the highest but this means this much to me he's still the highest Whatever is lofty in your life, he's greater than that. He's more worthy than that. In Ecclesiastes 5 and 8, our God is even called this. He who is higher than the highest. I love it. Because, listen, what that means is you've got to give him the highest praise because that's what he deserves, and to ascribe greatness and glory to God, as I've mentioned already twice before, is especially significant during this season because of the focus and the meaning of the holidays. Because the very first Christmas began with a recognition that worth was a part of worship. Look at Matthew 2 and verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Now these, unlike me and others perhaps, they were very trained and educated. These were wise men schooled in the sciences that had traveled for over 700 miles from yonder Babylon across harsh, inhospitable deserts. Marauding bands of, of, of brigands, just thieves, cutthroats. The hostility of a desert, the, 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 the terrain unforgiving and harsh. And, and they had traveled for months to get to where Christ was at, following that star. And now they have come, and they fell down, and they put worth into worship. And the Bible said, "Opened their treasures; they presented gifts to him: gold, frankincense, and myrrh." I want to make this statement, and I I, I I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want you to think that we're trying to be more spiritual than than anybody else. But if you know the history of the church, you know the reason that broken pulpit is there is because we were divinely. Supernaturally visited in 1996. That's 22 going on 23 years ago. And I want to tell you since then, money doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Because I found something better. And there was something about the encounter of these wise men that when they saw Christ, their treasure, their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh, they said, here, you can have it. It doesn't matter anymore. We found a treasure that is greater than what we carried with us. You see, I personally don't believe they brought the treasure just to impress him. He's a baby for heaven's sakes. probably things they needed on their journey, but they said, we don't need it anymore. <laughs> we can take it down a notch or two because we found a treasure that is of greater and inestimable value, much far beyond what we have. And this is really, really important as I get ready to close. Your assessment of God's worth and the value you ascribe to him is often based upon several things. It is. It is your worship will be determined by one of the things i'm getting ready to mention to you number 1 your worship your worship or your assessment of the value of god is based upon your own personal recognition of need and what he can do for you it is matthew 9:18 while he spoke these things referring to christ behold a ruler came and worshiped him saying my daughter has just died But come lay your hand on her and she will live. Story of Jairus and his daughter. You know, you don't find where Jairus ever attended a service before. He wasn't there when Jesus broke fishes and loaves. He wasn't there when he walked on water. He wasn't there whenever he healed the paralytic. He wasn't there when he cured the leper. But he's sure there now. Because all of a sudden the need is in his house. It's his need, and he recognizes, that's my daughter. I'm about to lose her. She's dying. And whenever you recognize the profundity of your own need, it causes you to kick up the value. You see in him a few more notches. Key to this is first coming to recognize your need. And therein lies the problem with so many people today. Because they don't realize how profoundly lost man is. They don't. You think the government's going to solve anything? Your need influences your appreciation for the value of a thing. And the greater your need for a particular thing, the greater the value you will inevitably place on it. I'll give you an example. In 2015, the price of Daraprim, a drug used by AIDS and transplant patients, Soared from thirteen dollars and fifty cents a pill to seven hundred and fifty dollars a pill. One year. Yes, why would anyone pay that kind of price? It's because they decided they wanted to live more than they wanted to die, more than they wanted their money. A ninety-day supply of the hepatitis C drug Harvoni costs ninety-five thousand dollars. That's a ninety-day supply. It has a ninety percent cure rate. However, in Egypt, you listening? The very same drug cost only $900. 95000 here, 900 there. You say, there's something terribly wrong with this. Absolutely. But you know why pharmaceutical companies get away with it? They will charge us these outrageous prices because they know something. They know people in this country are better off financially than those in Egypt. And we will pay almost anything to live. We'll we'll sign over our house. We'll sell our car. We'll get somebody to put up a GoFundMe page. We'll do all kind of stuff. You know what I mean? We'll beg money from our relatives. And we'll pay $95,000 for a 90-day supply of a drug that we could buy in Egypt for nine hundred dollars. If you ever develop hepatitis C, and your doctor says recommend Harvoni, get on a plane, go to Egypt, and save yourself some money. You say, why will people pay that? Because when you're dying, your house don't mean anything anymore. You lose your pride. You don't mind. You'll ask anybody. You'll call relatives you haven't talked to in a year. Ten years. You'll walk. Better to walk and be alive than have a car and die. And pharmaceutical companies understand your perception of need will influence your understanding of value. Number two, your worship or the value you place upon God is also determined by your appreciation of what he's already done for you. Luke 7, 47 and 48, I tell you, her sins, Jesus said of the woman who had just broken the alabaster box, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only love little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. She is extravagant in her worship because she's been forgiven so much. And I just wonder if we realize that when we come to church, there are some people that have a better understanding of what God brought them through and from than some others do. And if you're one of those that God has done something for you, Break your alabaster box, honey. You ascribe to him value. You give him worth. Hello, somebody. Number three, your worship of the value you place upon him is determined by your priorities. And trust me, if you ever get diagnosed with hepatitis C and your liver is failing, it will rearrange some priorities. If your doctor says, you see this medicine right here, it's not much. It's only a 90-day supply. But it has a 90% cure rate, and you have a 90% chance of living if you take this medication right here. But are you sitting down? Because let me now the bad news is going to cost you $95,000. You may have been planning on a ski trip to Aspen. Renting an RV and traveling across America. Going scuba diving, and scuba diving in the Caymans. But after you hear him say that, you cancel the Caymans, you cancel Aspen. You call the RV place and cancel your reservation. And you say, honey, we're going to take another mortgage out on the house because I don't want to die. It rearranges your priorities. And when you see him in his loveliness... Oh, I need, I got to talk to somebody. I got to talk to somebody. When you know what your need is and you know where he brought you from. Am I in the right place today? It will make you worship God when others don't lift a hand. They don't say a word. They don't have anything to give. Your worship or the value you place upon him is also determined by the revelation that God gives you of his beauty and of his grace. And I can't say enough about that. May God give each of us this Christmas season a revelation of his beauty. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean like Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Angels cried, holy, holy. I saw that. I saw that the pillars of the temple were moved. Oh, listen to me, if God will give you a revelation of who He is, you will spend the rest of your life being a committed worshiper. You'll never be anything but a worshiper. You will put worth back into worship when nobody else sees it. Hello, somebody. You will give God glory and praise. know It won't matter what your circumstance is. It won't matter. Broke. Down on your luck. You don't even care. I just praise him. I just praise him. I just love him. I just love him. I love him. Aren't you upset? Your house has been repossessed. No. Doesn't even bother me. I got a mansion somewhere in glory anyway. I, I praise him because he deserves my worship. So I'm finished. But to properly ascribe to God the greatness he deserves, you must ask this question, how much is he worth to you? Because often we talk about congregational worship, collective worship, where your worship is joined together with mine. That's not how worship is supposed to be approached. Worship is intensely personal. You properly ascribe to God worth when you ask yourself how much is he worth to me not worth to my neighbor not worth to the lady behind me the brother in front of me not worth to pastor not worth to my kids not worth to my wife not worth to uh, my husband how much is he worth to me And here's what you need to know. There are the four creatures around the throne that are sitting there that are assessing our worship. And they do thumbs up or thumbs down. And when I offer him praise, I want them to say, yeah, he's worth all of that. Yeah, he's worth every bit of that. Yes. I want him to say, amen, son. Go ahead. Praise him because he's worth everything you just gave to him. My worship is my statement on his worth to me. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl... Of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. I conclude by just simply pointing out an obvious truth. When you sell everything you have to buy that piece of ground over there. Nobody but you sees the value because only you know the treasure. And your family may look at you like you're crazy. And your neighbors may question your sanity. You selling everything. You giving him that. You buying that it and everything else that's going on and and all the problems it's got it doesn't have good drainage it doesn't have access to clean water you buying that piece of property and selling everything you got a good house man you got a good car you got yeah but you don't know what i found in that field that's the thing you see whenever you are serving god there will be others that will question your value Question the worth you place on God. Hello, somebody. And you just got to keep it personal between you and God. You can't tell everybody what you found. You almost hear some man saying, honey, you you sold our bed for that? Some wife said, are you out of your ever-loving mind? You sold everything You gave up our retirement for That piece of property And all he says is Come here honey Let me whisper something in your ear I found a treasure in that field And there are some of us That have found a treasure That is worth everything Can somebody in the building Give him praise Can somebody give him worship Can somebody adore him can somebody stand at their feet and offer God some praise? What is, what is he worth to you? What is he worth to you? What is he worth to you? And so in the words of the old song that we sing every Christmas. Oh come. Let us adore him.